Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Kurdistan Connection with myself, Matt Broomfield, on Media News. Um, as uh, regular listeners will know, on the Kurdistan Connection, we put the situation in Kurdistan um, and relevant states in the Middle East in the context of broader geopolitical and security issues, particularly relating to Europe and to the United States, as well as across the world. Um, and my guest today is someone who has been at the heart, let's say, recently, and is currently at the heart of several such uh, related issues, related conflicts, um, related events. Um, and so I'm very glad to welcome uh, a colleague and friend of mine, Amy Austin Holmes. Amy, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. So Amy um, is uh, an academic visiting scholar at the Institute for Security and Conflict Studies at the Elliott School at George Washington University. Uh, she has also worked and reported quite extensively on the Kurdish issue, and uh, we've met um, in Java and Syrian Kurdistan. Amy has also recently been in Kurdish region of Turkey following the election there. But right now, uh, she is teaching at the Kyiv School of Economics in Ukraine, and is therefore also, of course, um, rather close um, to the heart of uh, the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, which, of course, has ramifications for the whole of Europe, also for the Middle East, um, and particularly for Erdogan and Erdogan's Turkey. So there's a lot of um, issues here that we, we could begin with and we could start talking about. And um, I want to try and get a bit of a sense of how these issues relate to one another. So perhaps to begin, you could just give us as best you can a quick overview. What's the latest situation there in Ukraine? And maybe then any thoughts on how people there view Turkey and Erdogan's role in that situation? Sure. Uh, so thank you again for inviting me to speak today. I am in uh, Ukraine now. I've been here for about two and a half weeks so far. Um, I'm here to teach a class at the Kiev School of Economics on disinformation and comparative perspective. Uh, I have about 78 students, and um, I'm very excited to be teaching this class here. Um, as you know, Russian disinformation has played a major role in uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and so here, people are very much focused on uh, the counteroffensive, which has been speculated about for months now, really, the spring counteroffensive. Now it's becoming more like the summer counteroffensive. Um, President Zelensky had actually put out a video, or the uh, Ukrainian um, Ministry of Defense had put out a video earlier, uh, about a week ago, if I'm not mistaken, where they were 
really urging people to be quiet and not talk about the counteroffensive. Um, uh, they, you know, the motto was uh, "Plans love silence," so they were actually really encouraging people to stop speculating and stop talking about it. Um, but just uh, two days ago, I believe Zelensky did officially acknowledge that the counteroffensive is underway. Uh, and in contrast to other counteroffensives, um, for example, um, when the in the early, you know, the first month of the war, when when Russia, Russia, Russia was really moving towards Kiev and trying to take the capital coming from Belarus, um, there was fighting in, in Irpin and Bucha just really an hour outside of Kiev. So they, you know, got all the way really to the suburbs, more or less the suburbs of Kiev. Um, and so that counteroffensive, uh, you know, took place back in uh, February and, and March of, of, of last year of 2022. And, and so this happened relatively quickly, whereas now, you know, it's taken months just to sort of build up to this counteroffensive. And this is a much larger uh, counteroffensive um, operation than than the previous uh, one. So, um, and, you know, the situation is quite volatile and, and dynamic. Um, I, I When I agreed to first start teaching here back in January, February, the situation in Kiev itself in the capital was, you know, relatively calm and the fighting was more concentrated in the east and, and the south of the country. But um, that has changed now recently um, as Russia appears to be, you know, was trying to prevent the counteroffensive from beginning and is now you know, possibly retaliating just today. Um, they're reporting that um, uh, Russian uh, Russian missiles killed 10 people in the hometown of where Zelensky is actually from uh, by striking a residential building. Um, and although that, you know, that was a number of several hours away from Kiev, um, still here in Kiev, we had um, not one, but two, you know, air sirens in the middle of the night. Um, I think the first one started around 3.30 in the morning. Um, and then the other one started um, later, I don't know, 7 a.m. or something. But I mean, so, you know, it was a bit of a rough night, to be honest, because, you know, having not just one, but two air raids where you are woken up in the middle of the night, it's something that, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's tough, of course, just for the, the people here to to live and to sort of go about their normal lives. But what's quite remarkable is that people are doing that. I mean, it's, um, you know, they do have an air defense system here and it is working fairly well. That's one big difference to um, to Syria or Rojava. And so I think that um, and you know, people, even when I go to, for example, um, I went to a pharmacy one of the first days I was here to buy allergy medicine. And the pharmacist just, you know, thanked me for the Patriots and thanked me for, you know, I mean, so you have these sort of conversations with people here about this. And it's, um, uh, so there's this dichotomy between on the one hand, you know, at, at when these air sirens are going off, it's, it is, you know, disconcerting or even terrifying, I would say, um, if you're not used to it, especially um, uh, because, you know, they're shooting not just cruise missiles, but ballistic missiles, um, Iranian drones. Um, but, uh, the, um, you know, when that's not happening, it's fairly, you know, it's a beautiful city and it's, it's people go about their normal yeah. everyday lives. And so that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. As you've suggested, it's a war of, of a very different character and a different scale to the military operations that, um, you know, we were both present in, 
in Java um, around the time of. Um, is are people there then? Are they kind of thinking, okay, this is just about Russia and Ukraine or, or Russia and NATO? And what are people thinking then about Turkey's role in all of this? Is there something that people care about or are aware of? I mean, the focus is very much on on Russia and Putin uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but they do also, you know, openly say they want to join NATO, and 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 so and, and they know, you know, who is sort of blocking that, right? Or who has been uh, sort of uh, that that I mean, that Sweden, the Turkey's opposition to Sweden now joining NATO um, is something that I think they're all very aware of. But you know, what Ukraine themselves, the, the Ukrainians themselves, would also like to join NATO, and so this is something that I think they are paying attention to. Um, <clears throat> I've been a little bit surprised, to be honest, because, you know, the, the Turkish Bayraktar drones were very kind of uh, hyped here in Ukraine, at least in, in the media and the Western media as being so important. Um, but to be honest, since I've been here and it's, you know, just been two and a half weeks, but I nobody has actually mentioned them. Nobody has sort of, you know, said, oh, I'm glad we have these Bayraktar drones, um, which <laughs> sort of is surprising in a way, because that's something that was uh, a theme in the in the in the media. Um, sort of to sort of highlight Turkey's role here and 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 what you know Turkey's contribution to uh, Ukraine defending itself from um, from Russia. So um, I you know I think that um, the you know as I said they're they're very focused now on on this counteroffensive and on uh, just looking at the the territory that they're trying to reclaim from uh, from Russia. Um, but um, I think that um, you know Ukraine's also larger orientation, both to to the West, to the United States, and to Western Europe, um, is also something kind of interesting to watch and to see how that will uh, how that will play out. Mm. Um, so you said, yeah, of course, ordinary people um, would like very much to join NATO, and there's an awareness that Turkey, in the case of these Nordic countries, has been an obstacle to that process. Is What's the, the what are the officials? What is Zelensky? What are the government saying or thinking about Turkey's role in all of this? So I think officially they are. I mean, they're being cautious. I think you know they're not like openly being that critical of of Erdogan for obvious reasons because they also recognize that that he may also uh, play a role in in whether Ukraine ever you know gets to join NATO. But but. So my, I think that it's just, you know, there's an awareness of, of what's happening here and that uh, that's also why um, I think with uh, Turkey's, um, you know, interventions in, in, in Syria, why there's been also, um, I mean, and not just Syria, the drone strike, the Turkish drone strike in, in Suleimania, um, you know, that why the response that to that, the U.S. response was, uh, relatively muted that there was this sort of also because of the Turkish elections and the Turkey's, you know, role in determining the entrance of uh, two Nordic countries to NATO um, played a role in that. And so if even the U.S. is being sort of cautious, I think that um, it's understandable that uh, or, you know, that Ukraine is as well. Yeah. So let's um, let's now just skip across continents, if we may, um, to Turkey, and we'll then uh, tie these kind of two points together. So you said a bit about what the mood is, perhaps in Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, but you were also just in Turkey 
for the elections. Um, uh, as we know, um, the incumbent President Erdogan uh, won re-election, um, surprising some Western observers um, and some people on the ground as well, I believe. Um, when you were speaking to people there and following the election, was foreign? did you feel like foreign policy was an important part of uh, that election and that vote, or were people more focused on domestic issues? So, yeah, so I joined an international um, delegation of independent observers, and we went to the province of Ara, which is um, in the far east, bordering Armenia. Um, it's actually the poorest province in all of Turkey by in terms of GDP uh, per capita, and it's also um, interesting uh, because it's where a very large and wide-scale rebellion took place after the founding of the Turkish Republic called the um, Adalat Rebellion, um, which, uh, you know, I think is still something that is not that uh, sort of present or not as discussed as, for example, the Dersim Rebellion or the Sheikh Said Rebellion um, that happened, as, you know, around the same time in the 1920s and, and um, 30s. But um, it, it was a very significant rebellion. Um, I, but this, um, you know, the, the region now is, is predominantly Kurdish um, and it, uh, you know, we, it's, it's also a fairly large province and we were only um, five people from this international foreign observers that came. And so we tried to sort of spread around the, and then to go to as many different polling stations as we could on election day. This was for the first round of the elections. Um, and I was with two other people um, because we split into two groups and my group, we went to eight different polling stations just on the day of the elections. Um, we were only, I mean, I was only allowed into three of the eight um, and the other polling stations and in meaning only like into the building. Um, and so one of those eight, we were only allowed in with the police escort. Uh, so there was a very heavy presence of the police. Um, there were also a few soldiers. So from the Turkish military present, I had a few of the polling stations. Um, but just, you know, to compare it to 2015, when I also joined an international observer delegation, um, uh, at the time in 2015, I went to Gaziantep. Uh, during the parliamentary elections in June. And uh, back back then in 2015, we were allowed in everywhere. I don't recall ever you know, being told we couldn't enter a polling station. And so compare that to now when only three of eight we were allowed in. Um, and the other, I think, important point is that the OECD, although there were OEC, there was an OECD, there were OECD uh, you know, delegations that were, the, of course, the official monitors and they were, you know, deployed to various polling stations, no one from the OECD was in Ada. And Ada is, for example, one of the provinces where they kind of expected there might be problems or, you know, it was in these, you know, in the remote regions, uh, you know, far from Ankara, far from uh, Istanbul, predominantly Kurdish regions where they expected there might be fraud, where there might be voter intimidation, where they might be, and, and you know, there was nobody from the OECD there. So I do think that, um, you know, it bears uh, pointing out that um, I think the you know international observers organizations like the OECD could have done a better job um, in terms of ensuring that they had a presence everywhere, um, or especially in the you know in the in the in the regions where they thought there might be voter intimidation. Um, 
you know, people were even joking that, you know, some of the OECD people were coming there for a vacation and they were going to like the fancy parts of Istanbul and, and things like that. So, and I, I don't want to belittle obviously what, what the OECD did because it is very important that they came and that they were there and that they observed, but um, there were definitely shortcomings um, is what I'm trying to say on the point of international yeah. observers. Um, and so, I mean, as you've kind of suggested a bit, I think they, they, there is an increasing authoritarianism in Turkey. We saw that around the election, but obviously this is a more ongoing problem. I suppose for, from the outside, it kind of felt like a lot of Europe was kind of hoping for a Kılıçdaroğlu uh, presidency, but now that's not the case. There's quite a pragmatic response of, oh, okay, well, it's Erdogan, we've just got to do business with him as usual, and that's something that we have to accept. Uh, do you, what do you think about this kind of approach on behalf of Europe? What approach should Europe be taking to um, Erdogan? Um, you know, it's a it's a big question, right? I mean, and so I think that, um, of course, um, we, you know, Europe is, you know, also very focused on on Ukraine. And I think, you know, this dramatic shift in uh, you know, the positions of Germany and, uh, you know, Germany especially, but but other countries as well in Europe is now, um, you know, increasing their military spending, you know, suddenly the, you know, their, their priorities have shifted, to put it mildly. Um, and, you know, the way that I think a lot of European countries and to some extent the United States has also approached this is that, you know, really we need to do anything, anything possible to get the Nordic countries into, into NATO. Um, and that has meant being, you know, relatively, you know, quiescent when it comes to speaking out about um, some of the things that um, Erdogan has, has done, including even, you know, as I mentioned, the Turkish drone strike in Sulemania on, you know, the convoy that was, carrying uh, SDF Commander-in-Chief Muslim Abdi, but also three U.S. military personnel. I mean, it was it's kind of shocking to me as an American that that was not, I mean, the CENTCOM uh, put out a statement, but nothing by the White House or uh, State Department, as far as I recall. So um, that, um, you know, that type of policy, I think, is potentially going to harm us again in the future, because if there's not a stronger pushback and if there's not stronger uh, condemnation of of the, these types of really reckless um, drone strikes targeting convoys carrying U.S. military personnel and the SDF uh, chief are, um, you know, it's not going to it's not going to help us basically down the road if if we want to just do the bare minimum of securing American military personnel and continuing the de-ISIS um, campaign, um, you know. But the other dynamics in Syria with with the Assad regime and uh, Russia is also very you know, very interesting to, to sort of see how that may uh, play out. Um, in general, I would say that, um, you know, both Kilishtar Olu and Erdogan, you know, Syria was a big part of, of the elections in Turkey. And um, it was quite remarkable to see how Kilishtar Olu, for example, shifted, you know, completely after, from the first round to the second round yeah. from basically, you know, appearing to be somebody who, you know, would go out and make this heart signs, you know, just sort of try to appeal to people. And then suddenly, you know, huge placards all over the, you know, Istanbul, where I was at the time, then for the second round, you know, basically the Syrians are going to be kicked out. And uh, it was, that was quite remarkable. Um, but, you know, Erdogan also has said he wants to deport the Syrian refugees. Um, so my guess the point I'm trying to make is that um, on the one hand, you know, pursuing this 
this plan of trying to resettle or deport or, you know, Syrian refugees, which of course is a violation of international human rights law to deport refugees into a war zone. Setting that aside for a moment, I mean, if that is really the goal of the Turkish government to, you know, repatriate millions of Syrian refugees, uh, but also at the same time normalize with the Assad regime, which will only empower a brutal regime, I mean, this will lead to more refugees fleeing, most likely to Turkey. Because it's from Assad that they originally, most of them fled, right? I mean, and also from ISIS. But so, and also, you know, continuing to, to pursue the militaristic um, approach towards the SDF, YPG, Kurds in northern Syria with the drone strikes, et cetera, threats of a ground and, you know, incursion, invasion, um, is also contradictory to the goal of sending back refugees. Because... This too, I mean, the the constant drone surveillance even and the drone strikes, um, because, you know, I was there at the end of March, early, uh, just until like April 1st, when I came back from the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Um, so it, at that time, you know, um, it really, I, I really felt more than ever before in eight years of going to Rojava, Northeast Syria, since 2015 until now, 2023. I mean, I never felt so much fear among ordinary people because of the Turkish drones. And, you know, that's saying something, I think. I mean, there's really this fear that they're pervasive, you know, even if they're not carrying out strikes, just the surveillance itself is, it really does, um, you know, restrict the movements of people also. Um, yeah. I mean, just if you think, you know, when I think about how I at the time was conducting my survey of the SDF in like 2017, 2018, 2019, um, because I was sometimes travel, you know, I needed to go to the SDF bases to do my survey. And so sometimes, not always, but sometimes the SDF would take me there because they know where their bases are. And so they would drive me there, right? Um, uh, other times I would drive with a, my own driver or, you know, get there in some other way. But my point is that sometimes I would need to travel with the SDF to get to the base so that I could conduct my survey. Now, of course, I, I avoid that because you know i don't want to be hit by a turkish drone right i mean so it, no, it's really right i mean so it's really dramatically changed just uh i think in the past year or two um and i don't think there's an appreciation for that hmm. um, even amongst maybe people who are Syria watchers partly because so much is happening in syria there's a lot of talk about the normalization etc cetera, etc cetera, but um so anyway, to go back to my the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, getting refugees to return and normalizing with the Assad regime and continuing this militaristic approach to the SDF, they're they're um, you know, it's like cognitive dissonance. I mean, trying to do one <laughs> all of those at the same time are uh it's sort of doomed to fail, I think. Uh, but uh we'll see what what you know what happens and how uh, how you know these dynamics play out. Yeah, because yes, yeah, so as as you've suggested, then I mean, as regards northern Syria, also as regards um, Sweden's NATO accession and the other related issues, then typically the policy lately has been one of appeasement towards Turkey. Um, you've suggested that might lead to difficulties further down the line. Um, but what is what's the alternative? Are there ways that NATO powers can take a firmer hand with Turkey without risking pushing Turkey towards Moscow? I think that's the question everyone is asking themselves at the moment. Um, and that's why, you know, the argument that I'm trying to make is that 
um, Erdogan himself will not be able to achieve what he wants by you know, getting refugees to return safely if he continues the militaristic approach to northern Syria, trying to essentially, you know, degrade and destroy the entire autonomous administration. I mean, continuing that policy and getting refugees, I mean, then, you know, he's destroying one of the few safe places where they could potentially go back. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, that's what I'm trying to say is that it's, he won't achieve his own policies by continuing this militaristic approach. And I think, you know, that's actually the type of argument we need to be making is that we can complain, we can say, you know, talk about Kurdish rights, the rights of, uh, you know, Armenians, Assyrians, uh, you know, people in, in the Northeast in general, as long as we want. But the fact is that, you know, I think to convince the new government of, of Erdogan will require sort of convincing them that they are not able to achieve what they say they want, even by continuing these policies. And that, in fact, um, you know, there is a win-win-win situation in theory available, which would be to get uh, the Turkish community, business community, and Kurdish business community to invest in Northeast Syria. I think you've written about this yourself. Um, you know, that the General License 22, which the U.S. had announced, um, has not uh, resulted in um, investment in the Northeast. And I think you know, I myself worked at the State Department actually for one year through this Council on Foreign Relations Fellowship that allows academics to contribute their expertise in government. Um, and so I, you know, I think the, the U.S. government didn't do a very good job of explaining this policy to potential business, uh, the business communities that potentially stand the most to, to benefit from it. Um, and so um, I think... You know, I think that the, the United States could have done a better job of sort of rolling out this policy and explaining it to people. Um, but um, yeah, but I mean, there there are definitely are other uh, sort of policy options out there. Um, and those are, I think, the things that we need to be, um, you know, to be trying to pay attention to. Absolutely. Well, Amy, uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, as I said, we've uh, covered quite a lot of ground. Um, quite fast in, in this conversation. So thank you for tying together this whole um, kind of situation on the Europe's Eastern Bank, which is you know, also interconnected and so worth considering. And yeah, your proposal at the end as well, which yeah, I, I agree with and I think are useful thoughts to take forward. Is there, we're coming to the end now of uh, discussion, but is there anything else that you would just like to highlight it by way of a closing remark? Uh, actually, yes. I would just like to mention that uh, one of the polling stations we visited on the the day of the elections during the first round of the elections in Turkey was Patnos in Ada. And the two um, co-chairs in Patnos have actually mm. just been arrested uh, two days ago, I believe, or three days ago. Yeah. Um, and they're currently still detained. So that's something that I think uh, is also worth, um, you know, highlighting and flagging that this is uh, an ongoing process of uh, disenfranchising essentially democratically elected uh, Kurdish uh deputies in 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 the Kurdish region and it's disturbing to me that you know some of these people who I myself just met a few weeks ago um in in Ada are now currently in detention so um I think there should be also more focus on um these uh yeah on this issue yes indeed yeah thank you for raising that and um yeah of course it's business as usual in many ways um in Turkey following the um electoral results sadly uh, but yeah Amy thank you so much for joining us today from Kiev. Um, 
yeah, stay safe. Um, and thank you for sharing your experiences with us. Thank you so much again. Okay. This has been the Kurdistan Connection with myself, Matt Broomfield, and I guess today, Dr. Amy Austin-Holmes. Until the next episode, goodbye.